an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This, this won't be a, a uh, sweeping um, account of evil in Aristotle, but rather a, a rather uh, focused um, analysis of a text of his in the metaphysics that I think has significant implications for other areas of his thought. The genesis for, for this paper grew out of a seminar on Aristotle's metaphysics um, that I ran maybe six years ago now, um, where I was bothered by this, this um, section of Book 9, Chapter 9 of the Metaphysics that just didn't seem to jibe with the typical standard interpretation of, of Aristotle on privation and evil. Um, and then again, this past summer, I was leading a seminar on the metaphysics, and I came back to this, this passage and vowed that I wasn't going to let it pass another time. So I, I worked up this paper, um, which is still a, a work in progress. But um, let me say something about the, the standard view of evil and Aristotle, such as I understand it from a, a metaphysical point of view. Most standard accounts of the metaphysics of evil see a significant step having been taken by Plotinus, who um, criticizes, in fact, Aristotle for distinguishing between privation and matter. Um, so that's step one of Plotinus's contribution. The other thing that Plotinus does is he identifies evil with matter. So matter is privation, is evil for Plotinus. I'm sure I'm not doing full justice to Plotinus, and, and my colleague Dr. Ware can, can correct me on that front. But that's, that's how most of the standard accounts of Plotinus's contribution um, read. And then um, that still falls short of a, a full privation account of evil, which critiques from a Christian perspective Plotinus for this strict uh, union between matter and privation and recognizes that, in fact, evil is a privation of a due good. Okay, so one, one significant source, a contemporary source, a little, little older now perhaps, but still one that's recognized as quite significant is the French philosopher and, and theologian Charles Journet. And I have to um, thank Dr. Cirilla for, for pointing me in the direction of Journet's work. Um, He's, he has a, um, a great work, Le Maul, um, that analyzes evil, and, and he says of Aristotle on evil, the one Greek thinker, I think this is on your sheet, um, it may not be on your, your handout, and um, I, did, I did distribute handouts, there may not have been enough for everyone, so if you see somebody nearby, uh, perhaps you can look on with, with the person who has a handout. The one Greek thinker who came closest to it, that is a privation theory of evil, and almost formulated it without seeming to realize it or uh, without seeming to realize it or at least without wanting to make anything of it was Aristotle when he listed the various types of privation. Okay? So this, this is a, a relatively common perspective on Aristotle and evil, that it's, it's almost there. He almost has an account of evil as a privation of a do-good okay, with that, that important qualification. Um, and, and yet, he doesn't, he doesn't really have it, and he doesn't develop it, and it's not of, of great significance to his thought. Okay, so this, this paper is an attempt to challenge that common perspective. All right. 
So um, I'll, I'll read most of the, the rest of the paper, but I wanted to talk you through the, the beginning. Um, in Metaphysics Theta Chapter 9, 9-9, Aristotle claims that evil actualities, unlike other actualities, are not prior to the potentialities which give rise to them, and that evil actualities do not abide. There are four questions which need to be addressed to begin to make sense of these claims. What prompts Aristotle to make these claims here, that is, in that point of the metaphysics, at that specific spot? What precisely is Aristotle claiming? Is Aristotle's position on evil actualities consistent with his other principles? And what are the implications of his argument? The first question is best addressed by turning to the preceding chapter. Okay, so that's Theta 8. Aristotle argues in Metaphysics, Theta 8, that actuality is prior to potentiality in account, in time, at least in one sense of time, and in substance or being, usia is the word he uses there. Actuality is prior in account or formula, logos is the word Aristotle uses, insofar as every potential is a potentiality for an actuality. We know a thing only when we know what it is for, and so only come to know potentialities by the actualities to which they are directed. This notion of priority and account moves seamlessly into the reasons for Aristotle's contention that actuality is prior to potentiality in a limited respect of time. It is on the level of the species that temporal priority is necessary, rather than on the level of the individual. For example, the individual boy is prior to the man in the sequence of growth, but the man is prior to the boy on the level of the species because it takes adults, of course, to produce children. Aristotle attests the following to be the general principle at work in this example. Here's quote one from your handout. For from the potential, the actual is always produced by an actual thing. For example, man by man, musician by musician. There is always a first mover, and the mover already exists actually. End quote. Aristotle employs the same principle to make sense of priority in being or substance. He claims, this is their second quote, the things that are posterior in becoming are prior in form and in substance. For example, man is prior to boy and human being to seed. For the one already has its form and the other has not. End quote. However, another dimension comes into this account of priority and substance, namely the telic. And it is this which provides the significant development for making sense of Aristotle's evaluative distinctions in the following chapter, the one that concerns us most directly. Aristotle divides his account of priority and substance into two parts, the first encompassing perishable substances and the second imperishable. His accounts for priority of actuality over potentiality in both divisions are explicitly teleological. The same division between perishable and imperishable substances is employed in the following chapter where Aristotle's claims about evil are made. Regarding the first division, Aristotle gives the general principle. Here's quote three from your handout. For that, for the sake of which a thing is, is its principle, it's arche. And the beginning is for the sake of the end, and the actuality is the end. And it is for the sake of this that the potentiality is acquired, end quote. Animals, for instance, have sight that they may see and not vice versa. Human beings, as well, achieve perfection in their sciences, whether technical or theoretical, so that they may have the power to exercise those sciences. 
Whether human endeavors are directed towards products or there are no products apart from the actuality, the end is the master of the potentialities that lead to it. And so Aristotle concludes, here's quote four. Obviously, therefore, the substance or form is actuality. From this argument, it is obvious that actuality is prior in substance to potentiality. And as we have said, one actuality always precedes another in time right back to the actuality of the eternal prime mover." End quote. This reference to the eternal prime mover brings us to the other division that dealing with imperishable substances. Aristotle contends that eternal things are, so to speak, super prior. Quote, this is quote five, for eternal things are prior in substance to perishable things, and no eternal things exist potentially. End quote. The lack of any potentiality is the mark of the eternal thing's superiority. All perishable things contain potentialities, and potentialities are always potentialities for contraries. It is precisely this potentiality for contraries that opens up the possibility for evil. In their substance, or without qualification, as haploss, which Aristotle contends amounts to the same thing, imperishable things lack potentiality even if all but one of them moves accidentally. All such beings, then, Aristotle insists, exist actually. With the principle in place that what grounds the claim to priority and substance is the actuality of those substances, whether it is an actuality that governs a process of completion in a perishable thing, or an actuality that simply abides, we have now the key for making sense of Aristotle's evaluative claims in the next chapter. And I'm using this term evaluative just to capture his distinction between good and evil. Um, I'm not um, yet taking a position on, on what's meant by evaluative other than that notional one at this point. To answer the second question, what precisely does Aristotle mean by the evaluative, evaluative claims he makes in Theta 9, we turn to that text. Like in the, in the case of his considerations of priority and substance, Aristotle divides his observations on goodness and evil between perishable and imperishable substances. So let's look at that passage now. This is number six. This is the critical one, and then there's a, another little part of it that I'll look at a little bit later in the presentation. Um, I'll just read it out loud while you're looking at it. Um, that the good actuality Spudeos energia is better and more valuable than the good potentiality, Spudeos dunemios, is evident from the following argument. Everything of which we say that it can do something is alike capable of contraries. For example, that of which we say that it can be healthy is the same as that which can be ill and has both potentialities at once. For one and the same potentiality is a potentiality for health and illness, for rest and motion, for building and throwing down, for being built and being thrown down. The capacity for contraries is present at the same time. But contraries cannot be present at the same time. And the actualities also cannot be present at the same time, for example, health and illness. Therefore, one of them must be the good. But the capacity is both the contraries alike, or neither. The actuality, then, is better. And in the case of bad things, tan kakan, the end or actuality must be worse than the potentiality. For that which can is both contraries alike. 
end quote. In their insightful case for the coherency of Theta 9, Katz and Polanski take note of the significance of Aristotle's use of better and more honorable, seeing in them an interpretive key for the claim to the passage's coherency. They argue that better is indicative of being more for its own sake and more honorable, or as Ross translates, Timioterra, more valuable, which indicates being more of an end. That seems to me to be correct, and for the reasons we've already seen as binding on priority and substance in the arguments from Theta 8. That is to say, what constitutes priority and substance or being is the energia, the actuality of the being. One difficulty that remains, however, is that of making sense of what precisely Aristotle means by spurias dunemas, a good potentiality. If, as Aristotle explicitly argues in the passage, every potentiality is a potentiality for contraries, what sense does it make to speak of a good potentiality? Does this suggest a distinction from a bad potentiality? But should it not follow from the claim that every potentiality is a potentiality for contraries, that it is only the actualities which ought to be designated as good or bad, and the potentialities regarded as evaluatively neutral? There's a lot of discussion in the, the literature on this passage on that, on that point, with Ross taking one position and Katz and Polanski and Jonathan Beer um, um, and a few other scholars taking another position. I think there are two tacks that can be taken to deal with this set of concerns, depending on the type of potentiality in question. In both cases, the notion of actuality provides the final normative standard for assessment for the following reasons. Aristotle has already dedicated a great deal of space in his metaphysics, so think about the context of this passage within the metaphysics as a whole, to thinking through substance, or usia, as an essence in the sense of a tati ein enai, that what it was to be of a substance, which is a treatment of substance which is explicitly telic, or indirected. A substance is, so to speak, the what it is intrinsically for. If I'm right in applying the arguments to this effect from earlier portions of the text to the Theta 9 passage, what makes an actuality good is precisely its degree of achievement of the telos that is definitive of that given substance. And what makes a bad actuality bad is the degree to which it thwarts the achievement of the telos definitive of a given sub substance. To see how this principle is at work in thinking about different potentialities, it is best to bring to mind some contraries to which, or which Aristotle focuses on at length in his Nicomachean Ethics, a consideration that some of you are, are working through with me this semester, reading the Nicomachean Ethics. I'm talking about virtues and their contraries, the vices. Virtues and vices are actualities of potentialities in at least two senses, one less evaluatively determined and the other more evaluatively determined. So that's cumbersome terminology that I haven't found a way to capture more neatly, but I, I have it on the, the handout there so you can um, see it and, and uh, follow what I mean by this. So by less evaluatively determined, I mean that the potentiality can more readily be seen as conducive to either good or bad actualities. And by more evaluatively determined, I mean that a potentiality is less conducive to development into one or another actuality. 
The point of this distinction in potentialities is in part to try to do justice to Aristotle's treatment while bringing some synthesis between Ross and Beer's claims that subpotentialities are evaluatively neutral and Katz and Polanski's claim that no potentiality is ever neutral. So these are the two major positions that are staked out in the literature on this passage. Either you can have potentialities that are never neutral or potentialities are always neutral. Right? The neutrality argument allows one to make sense of, of how you can have the development and actualization into one contrary or the other. Right? So you can have a good actuality or a bad actuality with a potentiality as neutral. But Aristotle himself speaks explicitly of the bad potentiality and the good potentiality. So what can be meant by that? Okay. <clears throat> right. So I think Katz and Polanski are right to argue that every potentiality is ultimately linked to a telos that is in whole or part completive of a thing's nature. This, in fact, is precisely what enables us to evaluate all potentialities by their good actualities. Bad actualities, similarly, are revealed as such, as bad, because of the good actualities. Right? So you can only come to grasp a bad actuality as bad because of this comprehension of a good actuality. Nevertheless, Aristotle's language of potentialities as potentialities for contraries lends itself to regarding potentialities as, so to speak, being zero points that can move in either a positive or a negative direction. This mathematical approach to potentiality is what I think Ross and Beer are applying in their respective descriptions of some potentialities as neutral. That approach, however, is partial at best, for it fails to apply just the sort of evaluative framework in which priority and substance is emphasized and so fails to recognize the extent to which Aristotle's designation of some actualities as bad is an account of in which badness is understood precisely as a deprivation of the good actuality that ought to be present in the thing. Okay? And not coincidentally, um, because of this conflict between the way that Ross is interpreting Aristotle on the neutrality of some potentialities and Aristotle's explicit statements to the contrary, Ross argues that theta 9 in the metaphysics is incoherent, that Aristotle is contradicting himself and it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with the rest of his treatment in book 9, um, which I think is, is, amongst other things, a very uncharitable interpretation of Aristotle. So if there are resources available to one to make a, a passage coherent with the rest of the text, one ought to pursue those. I don't see the necessity of, of abandoning that principle of coherency and applying it to Aristotle. <clears throat> Regarding the less evaluatively determined potentialities, consider the moral education of the young. Aristotle assumes that youth, though varying in individual natural virtues, nevertheless all have a similar set of underlying potentialities that can be shaped in such a way as to make progress toward either virtue or vice. It is this underlying set of potentialities that Aristotle points to when he argues that the quality of moral education his audience has received makes all the difference in whether they will benefit from his theorizing on the happy life. Right? So the point of an ethics course, as Aristotle understands it, is not to make you morally righteous. You need to be morally righteous, more or less, in order to even follow his analysis of ethics, okay? which 
um, I know conflicts with other positions on the, the purpose of philosophical ethics, but that's, that's Aristotle's. Right? So the audience needs to already have a pretty well-developed set of um, um, relatively determined potentialities right, that we call one's character. Now consider the case of an adult. Adults have characters that are already more or less set. Each feature of an adult's character is already a significant actualization of the underlying potentialities native to a human being. These actualized potentialities are, however, often latent. I don't just mean that they're not used when you're asleep, but also that most of them are not directly operative in any given action. To give an example, a courageous woman remains courageous even when she's acting temperately and not courageously. I don't doubt, of course, that her courage is relevant in some way to her temperance, since to deny that would be to undermine the unity of the virtues. Nevertheless, it is not her courage that is actualized into activity in her selection of sides for dinner. In the act of eating just the right amount of food at the right time and in the right manner, it is this woman's actualized potentiality of temperance that is still further actualized into action, while the actualized potentiality of her courage remains latent. Moreover, virtues are just the sort of actualized potentialities which cannot be further actualized in a manner contrary to their actualized natures, which is significant. They are already good actualities, even if not fully realized. Right, so on the one hand, you've got the underlying potential to develop a virtue. Okay, so that's a, a less determined um, level of, of actuality. And then you've got virtues, or vices, as the case may be, that are already determined and, and less flexible, so to speak. This is the metaphysical basis for Aristotle's claim that one cannot misuse a virtue. There is no way to act badly and virtuously. And to think there is, is both to have misunderstood Aristotle on the virtues and to have failed to appreciate his metaphysics of potentiality and actuality. This example gives us, I think, a way to think about good potentialities, the virtues, as well as bad potentialities, the vices, while at the same time recognizing that those good or bad potentialities are themselves the actualizations of potentialities that underlie them and which are evaluatively less solidified but still fundamentally good. In other words, the less and more here with respect to potentiality refers to the, to the degree to which that potentiality is itself already actualized. <clears throat> All right. Um, when the apparent conflict is found in contiguous chapters, as I was saying before, when you have this, this conflict, potential conflict between the interpretation of theta 9 and the interpretation of theta 8, one ought to practice what I call interpretive charity. So with this principle in mind, we see um, that theta 9 can be seen as qualifying the apparent claim to unrestricted priority in actuality of substance with an argument that this priority does not apply in the case of, e of evil actualities to be no stretch at all, but in fact a further application of the argument from priority that he gave already in theta 8. For as we've seen, actuality in being or substance is precisely in actuality with respect to the achievement of the telos of that substance. Bad actualities fail in this sort of priority precisely because of their privation with respect to the telos in question. They are, in fact, posterior to good potentialities 
which are good precisely because of their dependency on the good actualities towards which they incline. With respect to priority, bad actualities are third in line as a consequence of the absolute priority of good actualities, a point that comes through clearly at the end of the passage quoted above and worth reminding ourselves of here. Quote, and in the case of bad things, the end or actuality must be worse than the potentiality. So the consideration of good and bad potentialities with respect to imperishable substances bears this analysis out as well. The following quotation begins where the long quotation above broke off, and that's number eight on your handout. Okay? So this is, I know it's a, a big chunk um, that's only slightly broken up here, but it's the critical passage. I'll just read it again, um, and you can follow along. Number eight. Clearly, then, the bad does not exist apart from bad or evil things. I'm not applying, say, a Nietzschean distinction between bad and evil here. I'm using them synonymously. Clearly, then, the bad does not exist apart from bad things, for the bad is in its nature posterior to the potentiality. And therefore, we may also say that in the things which are from the beginning, that is, in eternal things, there is nothing bad, nothing defective, nothing perverted. For perversion is something bad. Diopthora is the word for perversion there. End quote. So there are two claims of special importance in this passage. The first concerns the existential status of evil, and the second, the evaluative status of eternal things. The claim that evil cannot exist apart from evil things proves to be a part of the justificatory premise, premises for why eternal things cannot have anything perverted in them. And both claims taken together make evident the sophistication, as I think of it, of Aristotle's privation theory of evil. Regarding the existential status of evil, Aristotle presents the claim that the bad does not exist apart from bad things, as following from the claim that the bad actuality must be worse than and posterior to the good potentiality. What is the argument implied in this claim that this is taken to be so obvious by Aristotle? First, he seems to assume it to be obvious that there are, so to speak, no free-floating potentialities. Every potentiality is a potentiality of a being. Second, Aristotle has already established in the first part of Theta 9 that every evil actuality is posterior to potentiality. These evil actualities are worse than the potentialities they actualize, but they are, again, actualizations of those potentialities. Therefore, these bad actualizations must belong to beings and cannot exist apart from them. In addition, we've already seen in Aristotle's comments on imperishable substance from Theta 8 that they lack potentiality altogether. Not only then must eternal substances be absolutely prior to all potentiality, and since all bad actualities are posterior to potentialities, they are therefore prior to all bad actualities, but it is impossible that an, e that an eternal substance be anything but fully actual. For these reasons, it's impossible that there be some bad which exists apart from bad things. Regarding the evaluative status of evil, so maybe I should comment on that last point a little bit further. That is, it's impossible that there be some evil that exists apart from things. Okay? Evil itself is not some substance Evil has to be attached in some way 
to things that can be characterized as bad or evil. There aren't, there aren't free-floating evils. Regarding the evaluative status of evil, we see now that badness is only to the extent that it is a defect or perversion of some substance that ought to be good. Badness is the present failure of a good substance to achieve its tati ein enai, the what it was to be of that substance, to achieve the telos that is definitive of its nature. Rather, in its nature, and note Aristotle's use of phusis in his claim from the passage I just read, that the bad is in its nature posterior potentiality. The bad is in the realm of change. It's in the realm of potentiality. It is and can only be in the realm of perishable substance and has no part to play at all in the imperishable realm of substance. So there can't be an evil deity, as you find, for instance, in Manichaeism. Um, it's metaphysically impossible, Aristotle is arguing. Indeed, it's the very nature of evil, as Aristotle tells us in his Nicomachean Ethics, not only to corrupt its host being, but to destroy even itself. Corruption and destruction are the hallmarks of evil. Contrarily, amongst the eternal things, there is, as Aristotle says, nothing bad, nothing defective, nothing perverted. There is in the realm of eternal substance, in other words, no privations of a due good. Perfection and permanence are the hallmarks of goodness. One last point should be mentioned in settling concerns about the consistency of this chapter, Theta 9, with the other principles of Aristotle. At the end of Theta 9, Aristotle reminds us that it is only by means of actuality that we can have knowledge of potentialities. This is quote 9 from your handout. He says, obviously, therefore, the, the potentially existing relations are discovered by being brought to actuality. The reason being that thinking is the actuality of thought. I like that. Thinking is the actuality of thought. So the potentiality is discovered from actuality. End quote. Applying what Aristotle has argued above in this chapter, it seems obvious that this concluding observation does not apply in the case of bad actualities. If that were not the case, Aristotle would be inconsistent in his application of the qualification to the restricted claim that actuality is prior in definition, time, and substance, and in fact contradicting himself. The concluding reminder serves to indicate again how it is that we come to know bad actualities to be bad. To wit, good actualities are good because they are perfective in the case of perishable substances and perfections in the case of imperishable substances of being. It is from them that we grasp good potentialities. Every potentiality is a good potentiality, even if some are more, more definite because already actualized to a higher degree than others. Because every potentiality is revealed by the good actuality, which is its perfection. Nevertheless, every good potentiality is still a potentiality for contraries. And it is possible that it be actualized badly. The state of being actualized badly is precisely the state of privation of the good actuality. And it is that privation which makes bad actualities posterior to every potentiality. We can only know, then, bad actualities to be bad actualities because of the good actualities. OK, so a few concluding thoughts on this interpretation of that, that passage. Um, 
We can finally turn to the last question proposed at the beginning of the, the section which you have on your handout where I list those four questions that I'm, I'm trying to address in this presentation. What are the implications of Aristotle's arguments in Theta 9? We have already had occasion to consider one in our analysis of the central text, and that is the extent to which Aristotle's treatment of potentiality and actuality grounds his teleological ethics. Indeed, the very bases for the repeated claims that vices are to be avoided and virtues acquired rest on the insight that vices are perversions of the virtues that a person ought to have. To be sure, the same set of potentialities are actualized. Okay, the same set of potentialities are actualized whether a person is vicious or virtuous. It's not as though you have a different set of, of human equipment that gets actualized when you become a vicious person. Okay? You're the same person, the same native equipment that gets actualized in, we might say, a perverse direction. Okay? But the one set of traits are badly actualized potentialities which dispose us to evil activities and the other are well actualized potentialities which dispose us to good activities. It is the well actualized potentialities and even more their activities which perfect our nature and bring us closer to the imitation of the altogether actualized being, namely God. It's the perfectly actualized being of God who is presented as the norm and measure of our best and most noble activity in the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, in that critical passage in Book 10, Chapter 8. And at the very end of the Eudemian Ethics, God is held up as the norm and measure of our every good and kalan, or beautiful and noble activity. In short, Aristotle's treatment of potentiality and actuality in the metaphysics supplies the foundation for his treatment of virtue, vice, and happiness in his ethical writings, and indeed, um, allows for him to describe God in such a way as God can be used as a, a standard for our virtuous activities. So this talk of God brings us to a second major implication of Aristotle's treatment of potentiality and actuality, especially in 8 and 9 of Theta, one that's of more immediate concern to the central task of Aristotle's metaphysics. What, in effect, Aristotle's principles achieve is the basis upon which Aristotle can conclusively argue in Lambda, or 12, um, chapter 10 of the Metaphysics, that the governing principle of the entire universe is and must be good. This hallmark of Aristotle's theology requires the arguments of Theta 9 for its defense. Okay? So everyone knows that, that Aristotle argues for the existence of an unmoved mover. Not everyone pays attention to the fact that he calls that unmoved mover good. The basis for the unmoved mover's absolute goodness is its complete actuality without any tinge of potentiality. So consider first Aristotle's claims regarding the goodness of both the universe and its governor. Here's your last quote. It's another lengthy one. I apologize, but we are interpreting texts here, so we've got to look at the, the source. We must consider also in which of the two ways the nature of the universe contains the good or the highest good, whether as something separate and by itself, or as the order of the parts? Is it not in both ways, like with an army? For the good is found both in the order and in the leader, and more in the latter. For he does not depend on the order, but it depends on him. And all things are ordered together somehow, but not all alike. 
both fishes and fowls and plants, and the world is not such that one thing has nothing to do with another, but they are connected. For all are ordered together to one end, that end being God, who's described in terms of, of actuality and thinking, because the actuality of thinking is um, reality. I do not think it an interpretive stretch to see the overarching argumentation of the metaphysics converging on this passage. It is the governor of the world, thought-thinking thought, which brings order to all things, and that order is super-concentrated in this being's actuality, in this being's goodness. Those arguments to the effect that evil cannot exist on its own or be found amongst the eternal beings are essential to the establishment of the principle of the goodness of the first being. Rather than rehash his metaphysics in the remainder of the ultimate chapter from book Lambda, Aristotle is content to mention some of the inadequacies of accounts of the universe that fail to appreciate the order of actuality, that is, goodness, in the universe, or the goodness of its governor. These polemical remarks include a reference to a group of thinkers, which seems to include Plato and his followers, which, Aristotle writes, is right in saying that it, the good, is a principle. That is, the Platonists are right to say that the good is a principle, but how the good is a principle, they do not say, whether as end or as mover or as form, end quote. We are all familiar with Aristotle's rejection of the Platonist univocal account of the good. Right? That's in Nicomachean Ethics, Book 1, Chapter 6. Okay, so this is why everyone thinks, well, Aristotle's done thinking about the good on a grand scale because he critiques Plato's account of the good, which is a false conclusion to draw. Too often we fail to appreciate the fact that Aristotle himself has a theory of the good as ultimate principle. The best good for Aristotle is an eternal and perfect substance, and its nature is the source of all goodness in the universe. The lines of dependency or better participation that all beings have on this first being are traced through inquiry into substance, especially in terms of the ways of being, potentially and actually. In such an inquiry, one indeed encounters beings which fail to be properly ordered, fail to be good, fail to be actualized in the way they ought to be. Such failures, such defects, such privations of the good actualities that ought to mark those beings can ultimately be understood as such only by having experienced and reflected upon the universe as good. Thank you. So um, my um, comments or criticisms fall maybe into three categories. Um, in some cases, I suggest um, uh, changes to the rhetorical structure of the paper that might make it a bit clearer, make the, the principal point a bit clearer. Um, uh, in, in, other, in other cases, I uh, wonder out loud to myself why um, Dr. Sanford didn't choose certain other texts in Aristotle to support his privation theory, and by offering these texts, maybe uh, it's a help to, to, to a further draft of the paper. Um, but then, uh, in, the, in the middle of my remarks, um, I have what I think maybe is a sort of substantive criticism, and it goes something like this, is that, um, it, it seems to me that when you read Theta 9, um, you can come up with a coherent account of what he says in Theta 9 
on on his own terms, and his own terms do not require, in my view, and we'll see if this works out, and to some extent the handout is about that, on his own terms that have nothing to do with privation at all. So that it makes, it seems if that's true, then it makes it difficult to make a strong claim that one can find in Theta 9 at least something of the nature of a privation theory. And then um, I take some notice of oddities in the text, um, which um, uh, lead me to something of a surprising conclusion, perhaps. And I'll, I'll, I won't tell you, but I'll save it and see if you get it. Um, OK, so let me read my, my response now. So the fundamental claim of Professor Sanford's paper is that in Metaphysics Data 9, Aristotle deploys a, quote, a, a mature privation theory of evil, end quote, <coughs> which includes the notion that, quote, evil is the privation of do good, end quote. Sanford cannot mean that this privation theory of evil is explicit in Theta 9, because Aristotle nowhere therein uses his word for privation, stereasis, a word whose various senses he explores in Metaphysics Delta 22. Central to Sanford's argument is the claim that Aristotle says, as Sanford puts it, Quote, that bad or evil actualities are unlike all other actualities, always posterior to potentiality in both formula and substance. A quick point on terminology. Throughout this paper, I adopt Sanford's and, for that matter, Ross's, Ross's usage of the phrases good and bad potentialities and good and bad actualities. But note that only the phrase good potentiality, spudaya dunamis, as J.J. Uh, referred to, actually occurs in the text. Only the, only the phrase spudaya dunamis, good potentiality, occurs in the text. And it is open to argument whether the translation good for spudayas is the most suitable one. The other phrases, good actuality and bad actuality and bad potency, do not occur anywhere in the text. We note in passing that Sanford's statement, quote, bad actualities are always posterior to potentialities in formula and substance, must be regarded as an, as an interpretive combination of two sentences in Aristotle's text, the first of which, at least, is the conclusion of one of Aristotle's main arguments. The first sentence is that, quote, in the case of bad things, the end and the, actu the, end and the actuality is worse than the potency. The second is that, quote, the bad, the bad is posterior in nature to potency. So that the wording of Sanford's claim <coughs> equates posterior with worse, which will require argument, and adds instead of Aristotle's in nature, his own notion in formula and substance. And this will require elucidation. For this reason, Sanford's statement cannot properly be a premise of his argument. Let me now give a brief sketch of what I understand his argument to be, which he divides into sections headed by four questions. We shall address only the first two sections and refer to them as section one and section two. The first question heading section one is, what prompts Aristotle to make these claims here? I take this to mean, what prompts Aristotle to make the putative claim that bad or evil actualities are, <clears throat> unlike all other actualities, always prior to potentiality in both formula and substance? The fundamental business of Sanford's argument in this section is to set out the doctrine of metaphysics theta eight that actuality is in all fundamental senses prior to potency. This leads him to note a certain consequence pertaining to the division between eternal and non-eternal beings, namely that eternal beings in all but trivial senses are wholly actual, but non-eternal beings are marked by the possession of potentialities. 
And this last point is for him significant because through it he introduces the idea of evil. Quote, potentialities, he says, are always potentialities of, for contraries. And quote, this potentiality for contraries opens up the possibility for evil. What is missing in this section is an answer to the question which generated it. Sanford never really says what, in his view, prompted Aristotle to take up in Theta 9 the notion of bad actualities and its concomitant consequences. Other commentators have proffered more explicit hypotheses on this point. St. Thomas, for example, in his commentary on Theta 9, implies that after treating act and potency according to posterior, posteriority and, uh, priority and posteriority in Theta 8, Aristotle is filling out his treatment now by considering in Theta 9 act and potency according to good and bad. Um, and Ross says that Aristotle, in part at least, wished to oppose the Platonic belief in an idea of evil, um, that is, in an eternal, fully actual principle of evil. This is a criticism only of the rhetorical structure of the paper. One can actually dig out of Sanford's second section an answer to his first question, one similar to Ross's. Namely, in Theta 9, Aristotle wished to clarify that evil actualities are not in the same class of actualities discussed in Theta 8, so that there can be no actual principle of evil. Sanford, Sanford's exposition of this point is the occasion for his introduction of the idea of privation and sets up his privation theory of evil. Thus, the rhetorical expectation created by the inter interrogative heading of this section 1 would have been satisfied and the logical structure of the paper as a whole clarified by a statement of the following sort. In Theta 9, Aristotle argues for the general posteriority of evil actualities to clarify that there can be no eternal actual principle evil, the elucidation of which argument requires a privation theory of evil. The second question, the second, the, the second question heading section two is what precisely is Aristotle claiming? Again, I take this to mean what is Aristotle claiming when he putatively says that bad or evil actualities are, unlike other actualities, always prior to potentiality in both formula and substance. This section contains the heart of Sanford's argument. His conclusion is that the state of being actualized badly is precisely the state of privation of, good actua of, the, of, of the good actuality, and it is that, that privation which makes the bad actualities. That is to say, in Theta 9, there is something of a privation theory of evil. My criticism of this section are somewhat more substantive than my rhetorical criticism of section 1. Section 2 divides into three parts, which we will take one at a time, giving most attention to part 1. In the first part, Sanford attempts to elucidate what Aristotle means by good potentialities and bad potentialities. And his argument, simplified here for purposes of expositional clarity, is that the goodness of the former is measured by the degree to which the actualization of the potency achieves the end of the subject in which the potency existed, and the badness of the latter is measured by the degree to which the actualization of the potency falls short of that end. He elucidates his meaning by examples taken from the Nicomachean ethics. I have three criticisms, the last in my view the most significant. First. This mode of explanation does not explicitly introduce the notion of privation central to Sanford's main thesis. While it might be implicit, one wonders why he did not avail himself of Aristotle's discussion of rational potencies in Metaphysics Theta II, where Aristotle ties rational potencies directly to privation. Rational, pot rational potencies, so-called because of the presence of a rational principle, 
are potencies for contrary pairs. An example of one is the art of medicine. The doctor, for example, can produce both health and sickness. That is, he knows how to poison people. In contrast, an irrational potency is a, potent, is a potency for only one of contrary pairs. For example, fire produces only heat. What we have been calling good potentialities in Data 9 are at the very least closely linked to rational potencies as Aristotle's own example at Data 9 at 1051A67, if anyone cares, indicates. He says there, quote, what is said to have potency to be healthy is the same as what is said to have potency to be sickness. So because this is a potency for two contrary ends, it's a rational potency or at least something very close to a rational potency. Okay, in Theta 2, Aristotle explains rational potencies precisely by privation. Quote, the medical potency, he says, produces sickness and health, and the same rational, um, and the same rational principle, namely medicine, explains both health and its privation sickness, that is, by denial and removal of the things pertaining to health, one manifests the privation, which is the contrary of health, namely sickness. So the discussion of theta 2, linking as it does privation directly to rational potency, seems directly useful for Sanford's purpose, although a more complete analysis of the relation of theta 2 and theta 9 would be necessary. This linkage is precisely what Stanford wants. Second, and this is more of a quibble, some at least of the examples Sanford draws from the ethics are misleading. He invokes the underlying potentialities in the young for virtue and vice as an analog to the good and bad potencies discussed in Theta 9. However, what Aristotle refers to at Ethics 6.3.11.44b.1.29, which Sanford cites, is not dunamis, potency, but hexis, habit. The integrity of this analog would require, at a minimum, an account of the relation between dunamis, potency, and hexis, which Aristotle discusses at Metaphysics Delta 2, and the relation between stereses, privation, and hexis, which there probably should be translated something like primary positive, which Aristotle discusses in category 10. This account would again benefit Sanford's argument by producing an explicit source for the introduction of the notion of privation into his discussion, one which is directly linked to the idea of potencies, as Aristotle discusses them in Theta 9, namely rational potencies. Third, and this I think is the most substantive criticism, Sanford does not take sufficient notice of the very different form of argument that Aristotle deploys in Theta 9 in accounting for the goodness and badness of good and bad potentialities. Here I refer you to the home-crafted symbolic version of the argument on the handout. The argument goes something like this. The potency for health and sickness are the same potency, but actualization, but actualized contraries, but the actual, sorry, let me get that over. The potency for health and sickness are the same potency, but the actualized contraries, health and sickness, do not exist at the same time. One of the two contraries must be good, the other bad. Let the good one be health. The potency, being the same, must either be good and bad, or neither good nor bad. This last distinction, neither good nor bad, by the way, is Ross's neutrality theory in some degree at any rate, uh, which Sanford mentioned in his discussion. Um, now, since health is good, and the potency either good and bad or neither good and bad, or neither good nor bad, the actualized contrary health, which is good, must be better than the potency, which either has a share of badness or is neutral. From the other side, let the bad contrary be sickness. Now since sickness is bad and the potency either good or good and bad or neither good nor bad, 
The actualized potency sickness, which is bad, must be worse than the potency, which either has a share of goodness, uh, share of badness, or is neutral. The point is that Aristotle determines what, what Sanford calls the evaluative question without an appeal to any notion of privation. This is not to say that an alternative argument in terms of priority, contrariety, and privation of the, of the sort Sanford is trying to develop cannot, is not to say that it cannot be formulated. Rather, it is to say that Aristotle was not in any explicit sense deploying, as Sanford, as Sanford is arguing, a mature privation theory of evil in Theta 9. I'll keep my comments on parts two and three inadequately short so that I will have time for a very brief sketch at the end of my own unorthodox and possibly fanciful theory of Theta 9. In part two, Sanford argues that one should read Theta 9 as placing evil actualities in a sui generis class so as not to destroy the general theory of, of the priority of actualities developed in Theta 8. To do so, he resorts to Aristotle's claim I mean, I have to read this to you in Greek because I want to focus on one word, and the word is ara. So listen for the word ara, and then I'll make sense of it in a minute. Okay? Um, to do so, he resorts to Aristotle's claim, Deilon ara, uk esti to kakon parata pragmata, which Sanford renders, evil cannot exist apart from evil things, and which Ross renders, bad does not exist apart from its particular manifestations. My difficulty arises from the Greek word ara, which indicates that Aristotle draws this statement as a conclusion from previous points. Given the placement of this statement in the text of Theta 9, it appears in some way to be a conclusion following from or at least manifested by Aristotle's arguments for the evaluation of the meaning of good and bad potentialities as articulated above and as symbolized in the handout, an argument which, again, does not utilize the idea of privation. The point, I think, is that this statement that evil cannot exist apart from evil things ought to be evaluated with an eye to the integrity of Aristotle's entire argument and to so credit it would not properly require the notion of privation. In the third part, and this is kind of a quibble too, but um, it's so good I couldn't find anything but quibbles. In, there. Um, in the third part of this major section here, the, the question two section, um, Sanford seems to invoke the last part of Aristotle's argument in support of the proposition that potentiality is discovered through actualization in thought and for the inference therefrom that this feature of the act-potency relationship does not apply to bad actualities because they are a form of privation. This may be so, but Sanford does not let on that this last part of Theta 9 involves the actualization of geometric theorems through the construction of geometric figures. Leaving this fact unnoticed belies the very, very obscure nature of Aristotle's procedure there, which, if brought to light, might have diminished somewhat the force of the inference or the strength of the inference concerning privation which Sanford draws from it. I sum up my assessment as follows. The conclusion that Aristotle deploys in Theta 9, a mature privation theory of evil, is too strongly put. What the paper possibly shows in some, is something less that one might provide an alternative explanation of Aristotle's conclusions in Theta 9, which is compatible with the privation theory of evil. The former is a bold point. The latter, I think, would not draw so many objections. Now let, now let me indulge in what might be a bit of fantasy, which will be interesting at least for its unorthodoxy. Um, accumulate with me several observations. First, the phrase spudaya dunamis, or what was translated as good potency, 
seems an odd way to describe the notion of a good potentiality in a philosophic account involving such intricate metaphysical notions as actuality, priority, contrariety, and the like. Further, the evaluative terms beltion, better, which is translated better, and timotera, which is translated more honorable or, or, or valuable, um, um, are similarly unusual, especially if one has to take them as synonyms for the metaphysical sense of the term toproteron, or priority. Further, the term beltion, better, and certainly the term timotera, more honorable, would naturally invoke in the mind of a, Greek, of a general Greek audience notions associated with the likes of Achilles, who was a warrior better than most, whose, honor, whose lost honor occasioned the Iliad. Add to these observations that explicating the notion of spudaya dunamis, good potentiality, in terms of health and sickness, the former in any view better than the latter, provides an illustration of a philosophic idea, namely priority of actuality and priority in, in the relationship. Um, it, it provides an illustration of a philosophic idea well within the range of the common notions of the man on the street. Add finally that the place of chapter 9 in the general argument of book theta of the metaphysics has been problematic and has exercised the ingenuity of commentators to know certain conclusions. Ross himself thought it, it right. In, in indecipherable. Um, um, so, so we have all these various problems. Okay. Um, so, so let me let me by gathering the gross effect of these various observations express an unorthodox suggestion by way of a final question: Is it possible that what we have in Theta Nine is an excerpt from a lost exoteric work whose purpose? was to introduce a more gen to a more general audience the philosophic notion of priority, uh, of the priority of actuality over potency by way of the more familiar notions of better and worse. Once alerted to these common comparatives of value, the average fellow would naturally want to know about the worth status, to coin a phrase, of bad actualities like sickness. Although exoteric, could Theta 9 have been attached by one of Aristotle's editors, Andronicus, say, for the sake of convenience to the end of the general discussion of potency and act um, in book, uh, in book uh, theta, uh, simply because it contained a discussion of the ideas, of ideas similar to those in the rest of theta. If this is so, um, it would account for one of the general criticisms aimed at Aristotle in this chapter, namely that he equivocates over the notions of priority and worth, worth being a more generally accessible notion than philosophic priority. The worth of this suggestion will no doubt be diminished by the feeble ingenuity of its suggester. Nevertheless, let me thank Professor Stanford and the philosophy department for the opportunity at least to exercise my feebleness over so fine an attempt to solve the difficulties of this naughty text of one of the most formidable thinkers of our tradition. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.